Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 15 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill, and this podcast is based on the journals of my obviously great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, written in the 1840s about his travels around Europe as an engineer, and later actually then to Mexico. Let's concentrate on Europe for the moment, because it's, it's taken us a while to get through Europe, let alone Mexico. Right. Just a quick few things I always say at the beginning. This podcast is available on all good podcast platforms. If you Google it, it will come up on Acast and it will come up on iTunes. It's on Amazon Music. It's on Spotify. It's on Deezer, TuneIn, Podbay, Podbean, um, Sean Bean, uh, any bean that you can think of, any pod or bay or thing that you can think of, it is available on it. So... Oh, I'm from Yorkshire. Uh, <laughs> Sean Bean. Poor old Sean Bean. He's always getting killed, isn't he, in his films? Anyway, enough of Sean Bean. He doesn't need the publicity. Um, had a lot of marriages, hasn't he? <laughs> right. As you can tell, I'm getting distracted. Also to say, if you want to engage, and please do, with the podcast in any way, and with me personally, in discussing the aforementioned episodes, then you can... Find me on Twitter, that's at, uh, at 3G Grand Tour, and that's Scott of the Historic. It's also on Mastodon, as many of us sensitive souls were worried about what was going on with, at Twitter and how Mr. Musk was dealing with things over there. Many of us decided to set up Mastodon accounts as well, so you can follow me on there. And that one is, well, I think it's called GG Grand Tour. That's at scotted at universeadon.com. Okay, that's the server. Universeadon is the server that I'm signed up with at Mastodon. And at scotted at universeadon.com. If you put that in, that should come. Or GG Grand Tour, all in one word. Oh yeah, just say the Twitter thing is 3G Grand Tour. is the number 3 and then G and then Grand Tour. And then there's also a Facebook page as well, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. So if you Google that, the Facebook page should come up as well. And by all means, do message me or leave a comment or whatever. That'd be great. It's always nice to get some feedback. I just want to say, in the last episode, I mentioned when William was travelling through the city of Navarre, or town it would have been then, on his way to Turin that he saw a building that he describes as the cathedral, and I said, oh, the cathedral's not there anymore, blah, blah, blah. William was probably looking at what's known as the Basilica of San Gordenzio, and that is actually still a very prominent religious building in Navarra now, and it would have been the biggest church then, and that's probably what he was looking at. Now it's got a really, really tall dome and spire that was put on it after William's time, so that was put on about 1870 by an architect called Alessandro Antonelli. But it was probably that building that William was looking at. In fact, now it is actually still the most prominent building in Navarra because of this very, very tall dome and spire. And the cathedral, which was also designed by Alessandro Antonelli, which is a later building, which I also mentioned, uh, in a way is a, is a kind of neoclassical design, but it's kind of less prominent on the cityscape of Navarra than uh, the basilica, which stands out very much with this tall spire. And apparently a bit of a engineering miracle because um, somehow he had to use what was the old existing basilica, which was actually finished in 1690 to build then this very, very tall tower on. He's also very famous for designing a very well-known dome called the Mole, Mole Antonellian. <laughs> Mole Antonellian. I'll have to get the pronunciation right. 
Morley Antonelliana, which is in Turin. That's his other most famous thing, and actually that's been used. It's a very, again, another very tall dome and tower. This one, it's sort of square-shaped, but that's been used as a symbol of the city. And apparently now it's actually the Museum of Cinema there, but originally built as a synagogue. That never happened, because <laughs> Antonelli got more and more ambitious with his designs and the dome getting taller and taller, and the Jewish community deciding <laughs> we've had nothing. We can't keep affording to play these ever-grander ever ideas, so they pulled the plug on it, but it did eventually get finished, and it's now, as I say, the Museum of Cinema in Turin, but it's uh, used as a, has been used as a symbol of the city. Right, this episode coming up, really, this is mainly concerned with the interior of Milan Cathedral. So it's a very, very grand cathedral and uh, there's quite a lot to talk about but I have said in the past that William visits a lot of churches and cathedrals and I might not include everyone but I think I should have included quite a bit about Milan Cathedral A because it's such an impressive building and also it's he's in Milan and that's where he's going to spend quite a lot of time so I think of, of at least any of the buildings I should sort of include talking about it's Milan Cathedral and also there's just some quite nice observations in there from William about what's happening at the church at the time as well and then a little bit of his time describing the rest of Milan as I go through the original text I kind of have to assess how much to include and not to include and I'm a bit unsure about Milan at the moment because he has got three weeks, so he's got about the same amount of time as he had in Paris to look at all the sights and sounds of Milan. So we're going to see how that sort of pans out in the next episode and how much of his uh, description includes. So it could be that the next episode and the next maybe two episodes are mainly concerned with Milan and, and the culture that's going on in there and the sights and sounds of Milan in 1840. And uh, then after that, it starts getting on to his starting to work at the railway and making preparations for the opening of the railway. So that's it, really. I hope you do enjoy this episode. It really kicked off with William talking about the interior of the cathedral. However rich the exterior of this famed edifice appears, the interior fully bears out the expectation which the first sight gives. The nave is divided into five aisles, divided by finely worked and proportioned columns, the groined ceilings and arches being rich in ornament. The high altar between occupies nearly the whole of the choir. That's the area between the, the nave and the altar, sort of a partitioned area or eastern end of the church, and is especially on high festival days decorated with the utmost splendour. The vast number of massy, that's many, silver candlesticks glittering with wax lights, lamps richly chased burning perfumed oils, the busts of silver the size of life of saints and bishops placed on the altar itself, and that surrounded by at least fifty priests in their splendid robes, shining with gold crosses and silver stars. These added to the music of two large and excellent organs, placed one on each side of the choir, give the whole scene a sort of magic, and present to the mind of a stranger a strange and overwhelming feeling of astonishment and surprise. The altar, dedicated to the Virgin Mary, of which there is one in all Roman Catholic churches, is situated in the north of the transept, and is a very beautiful and much admired piece of workmanship. The statue of the Virgin holding the infant Jesus was executed by the celebrated Canova, that's Antonio Canova, and is considered the chef d'oeuvre, or masterpiece, of sculpture. The paintings and other decorations placed in its immediate vicinity are in strict keeping with the masterly statuary. On the morning of my visit... Three priests and their attendants were celebrating Mass at this altar, and a vast number of people were kneeling on the cold marble pavement in front, all apparently wrapped in the most profound devotion, a devotion which I since have good reason to know they generally leave at the doors of the religious edifice. Placing myself against one of the many columns that support the tower, I stood gazing at the concourse before me. Directly in front of me were three tall weather-beaten men and a boy clad in long white cloaks, light blue jackets and trousers, and immense boots made of brown leather. Their high-crowned hats and long staffs, shod with iron, lay on the pavement before them. 
These men, I afterwards learned, were Hungarians and hawkers of linen and hardware, and during my sojourn in Italy I met them often after this, and the immense weights they will carry is wonderful. I'll just interject here. I tried to do a bit of research into these Hungarian hawker characters that William's describing, but unfortunately nothing comes up, unlike uh, previous times when I have been able to find references to these sort of things that he's made, rather like the Savoyard organ grinders on the streets of London. These Hungarian hawkers of linen and other goods, there doesn't seem to be any particular details about them or historical references made to them. I'm sure somewhere there must be some expert on the history of Hungarian migration or Hungarian uh, economies of Victorian times, but um, it's just one of these frustrating points in the journal where you think oh I'd like to look into that a bit more but um, in the type of research that I'm doing not being able to find anything there's certainly nothing on uh, the internet about it and I have to say as I've found with other research that I've done into the journals it's amazing actually how much you can find online literally passages of books and previous tomes that have been uh, put online and you can find exact extracts from very ancient historical books and encyclopedias and things about stuff but i've googled hungarian hawkers hungarian travelers traveling salesmen hungarian itinerant salespeople hungarian linen even i think there might be a degree of um, artistry involved in hungarian linen looking at the sort of images that come up of the 19th century but it doesn't seem to be of uh, any particular interest or noteworthiness I haven't been able to find any images of Hungarian linen sales, bods and boys, or uh, anything like that. Uh, I'm sure if anyone is out there who could tell me more about the itinerant sales people from Hungary and their time in uh, Italy, in northern Italy of the 19th century, I'd be very glad to hear from you. That sound a bit niche. <laughs> Maybe quite a good subject to do a mastermind. It's always good to do something really, really niche so that the people who are doing the questions can't can't come up with many good questions. <laughs> the more niche, the better. Hungarian salespeople in 19th century Piedmont on the afternoon of the 15th of April, 1840, between about 2.30 and 4.30. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and your start of the ten. Oh, sorry, no, that's uh, that's uh, university challenge, isn't it? I mean, if you are intrigued about the uh, role of Hungarian purveyors of linen and goods in nineteenth uh, century Italy, by all means, go ahead. As I think I've said before, fill your boots and let me know. I'll, I'll just have to leave that one dangling in the air. attention was next directed to two barefooted monks, their hair all shaven from the crown and standing out, rough and bushy round their ears. One of them I particularly noticed had eyes that glared round him like two balls of fire and reminded me more of what a captain of banditti. So that's uh, a captain of bandits. I imagine that must be a Mexican word that uh, William's using here. and he reminded me more of what a captain of banditti might be than a person who had renounced the world and dedicated himself to the service of his maker. All classes were assembled here, in fact. The spruce citizen, the gaudy and swaggering peasant, and those of both sexes that were kneeling with their liveried menials. Servants, basically, but, you know, they're servants in uniform, so kneeling with their liveried menials behind them. Having satisfied my curiosity at this spot... I next made a circuit of the nave, round the whole of which is ranged a series of chapels and altars dedicated to the different saints that figure in the Roman calendar, many of whose names I now heard of for the first time. Some of them are exceedingly rich and decorated with excellent paintings. Many people were kneeling and praying round them. In this country it is considered fortunate to have a child born on one of those saint days, the infant being invariably named after him or her. And as those persons, when grown up, 
always look at them as their particular patrons. They always resort to those altars to pray, to count their beads, and ask for favour and protection. And it certainly does sound most strange to English ears to hear some of those names, and so I will give a sample of some of them that fell in my way, in fact persons with whom I was well acquainted. So just at this point, William then says a series of basically the Italian names for the various saints and biblical figures. But as I'm not a learned speaker of Italian, they're actually quite hard to translate. If you just put it into Google Translate, it won't give you an accurate comparison with the English alternative to what's being said in Italian. A very obvious example, and really the only one that kind of made any sense, is John the Baptist or Giovanni Battista. But as I say, it gives a list of four or five figures here, but I'd need the skill and advice of a proper Italian speaker to be able to really translate them properly for you. In the east end of the church, which is of an octagon shape, there are three immense and beautiful windows filled with stained glass. The first one contains most of the principal events of the Old Testament, and the beauty of the figures, though very great, will still bear no comparison to the landscape part of the designs. They are in fact totally beyond the power of description. The second or central window is filled with the principal passages of the lives of Christ and the Apostles, commencing with the appearance of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin, the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, the Nativity, the Circumcision, the Adoration of the Magi, the Flight into Egypt, Christ disputing with the Doctors, the Miracle of the Loaves and Fishes, the Woman Taken in Adultery, all the various circumstances of the trial and crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension, Christ appearing to the disciples at Emmaus, the miraculous gift of tongues, Paul's conversion and his preaching at Athens, and vast numbers of others, more than I can recollect at this period. These two windows are already filled with what has taken place. The third one and last one assumes to represent a subject upon which a vast diversity of opinion prevails. These compartments are all taken from the most striking passages of the Book of Revelations, and I certainly am of the opinion that in brilliancy of colouring and grandeur and beauty of design, this far surpasses the others. Death on the pale horse and the angel opening the Book of the Seven Seals always particularly attracted my attention, and I have paid numberless visits to those windows and gazed at them until my eyes have ached to such a degree that I could scarcely distinguish one colour from another. The greatest curiosity in this cathedral, at least that which attracts the greatest attention, is the subterranean chapel of St. Carlo Borromeo, the celebrated Archbishop of Milan, who died in 1584, and who endeared himself to his fellow citizens by his munificent charity to the poor and his fearless administration of the sacrament when a plague raged in the city. St. Carlo Borromeo was one of the most remarkable men to whom Italy has ever given birth. And those who might be disposed to undervalue the canonised saint must feel a reverence for the memory of the man whose patriotism, courage and charity entitled his name to the extreme of posterity. Elevated to the rank of cardinal at the age of 22, his conduct justified the partiality of his uncle, Pope Pius IV, who confessed this dignity upon him. As a scholar no less than a divine, was this excellent man distinguished. But his courageous and unceasing exertions during the plague that ravaged his country in 1576 are beyond all praise. These are remembered with a feeling of lively admiration that the courtly trappings and brilliant diamonds which decorate his remains might fail to awaken for the saint. His mortal remains are enclosed in a sarcophagus of rock crystal. A perfect view is afforded of the figure, which is attired in pontifical robes, glittering with brilliance, and the head, on which is a mitre, rests upon a pillow of gold. It is a strange mixture of what is costly and indestructible, with what is worthless and corruptible. This decoration of frail clay, from which the spirit has fled, is barbarous, and in my opinion decreases rather than promotes respect for the dead. And I turn from the crystal sarcophagus and its glittering ornaments, to reflect upon the more imperishable monument of his virtues and the fame that they have left behind. The crucifix borne by this great and good man in the procession during the fearful plague is carefully preserved under a glass case, and I confess 
has always appeared to me a far more befitting monument than the costly sarcophagus of rock crystal to the glory of him, who, actuated by his deep faith in it, was enabled to fulfil duties from which the less pious and charitable shrank back in terror. I'm going to break in again here just to discuss a couple of things. I think the first thing to mention is about these stained glass windows that William is admiring. Some of the stained glass windows in Milan Cathedral are actually said to be the tallest in the world. Its uh, scale of the whole building is pretty enormous, I think. So when you see pictures of it, I think they don't necessarily give you that good idea of uh, the overall scale of it. But uh, at the apses, it's known, where William is looking at these windows that he's describing, there are three very tall windows. And as he mentions, they're sort of scenes from the Bible. If you can imagine, they're made up of lots and lots of little squares, and each square, there's a scene from the Bible. And as William mentions, he particularly likes the Book of Revelations one. Now, there is indeed a Book of Revelations one, which is the third window. It's quite interestingly described as, as, um, I think, this one is concerned with uh, the things to come. (laughs) This is a good example, I think, of where you really are in the mind of someone of the mid, early mid-19th century, because, you know, we're so familiar now with visions of the future and, of course, things like science fiction and spaceships and dystopian worlds and all these sorts of alternative futures that we could think of. But, of course, this is uh, in 1840, the time that William's writing of, and, of course... People's ideas or notions of the future, I think, are very, very different from our own now. I think we often now tend to think things are a kind of technological future, but um, then they didn't have so much to go on, I suppose, and their idea of the future was closely tied to the idea of the Bible and the stories in the Bible. So um, I think William says as much conjecture as about these things to come, you know, that there's that kind of absolute acceptance that um, something like the Book of Revelations will happen. <laughs> I think William is maybe saying these things slightly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I kind of get that impression from the way he phrases it. But sorry, that was just something that struck me, is that our idea of history is a bit more solid, obviously, but our idea of what a future might be certainly changes over the years. Getting back to the, the windows, they're huge, they're very tall, William says he likes these ones about the Book of Revelations best, but he does mention, I think, the colours of them. And there was, there is one of, I think it's described as the Beast, but it's a, a red dragon with seven heads swooping down upon these poor victims. As with a lot of these things, the scale is slightly odd. The dragon is quite small and the people are quite big. <laughs> so you, you sort of wonder, perspective is a bit out of um, whack. <laughs> I suppose you have to fit everything into a small frame, so you've got to have a small dragon or beast raining down terror on the uh, poor population. Without actually visiting the cathedral itself and seeing the three windows that he's talking about, it's a little bit hard to um, pinpoint the scenes that he's referring to. Obviously, stained glass is quite a beautiful thing anyway, and uh, I can imagine him going back to see all these different scenes, because, of course, there are, I would think, looking at these scenes that are depicted in these windows there certainly must be hundreds of them so no wonder he could spend time going back there again and again looking at them i thought i'd just very quickly mention something i didn't say before about Milan cathedral in that it did take ages and ages to build it you know it began in the 1300s and not finished till 1965 officially but a big spurt on its actual completion was down (laughs) surprise surprise to napoleon again when he'd invaded italy and he was building up his empire in that at one point he wanted to be crowned king of italy as part of his empire so in 1805 it still hadn't been completed uh, particularly the front facade of it so um, he at that point ordered that it be finished and i think he employed someone called carlo Pellini to finish the cathedral and there's a picture actually of an etching as in 1745 and it does look Although it grand, it does look at the front of it rather run down. So anyway, it was at his instigation that a big spurt happened to the completion of the cathedral. I don't think it could have been completed by the time he was actually crowned king of Italy. That wasn't the entirety of Italy, actually. It was um, sort of the northern half of it, I suppose you'd say. But anyway, obviously Napoleon was deposed and conquered and defeated in about 1815. 
But in fact, Carlo Pellini, in honour of this injection of cash and so forth that Napoleon had instigated in the completion of the cathedral, in fact, one of the statues on the top of the very many pinnacles that are on the top of the cathedral is actually Napoleon. In gratitude to his uh, taking up the mantle again of getting it completed. Well, ordering other people to do it anyway. <laughs> I suppose he had the cash. I think apparently, I think there was some sort of arrangement where the French government would pay for it and then Italy would pay back and that loan was never actually returned. But anyway, the cathedral got built largely due to a large injection of cash and instruction from Napoleon. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention, sorry, this is quite a lengthy explanation, is this tomb of St. Carlo Borromeo. And there's quite a few things to say about old Carlo Borromeo. I mean, I think very simply, he was a saint and he was around sort of um, the mid, early to mid 1500s in Italy. And as William correctly says, he was appointed Archbishop of Milan by his uncle, who was Pius the Fifth, I think, Pope Pius the Fifth, Pope Pius the Fourth. He came from the Medici family, so he could have led a much more luxurious and privileged life if he wanted to, coming from the Medici family. But he went into the church and uh, was involved in making his way up the church, but was appointed as Archbishop of Milan by his uncle, which, you know, you could see it as nepotism. But there's many accounts of the saintly things that he did. Apparently, when he first became Archbishop, he uh, sold a lot of the plates and knickknacks and uh, various things and um, sold them and then distributed that money to the poor. He led a very, very simple life. He, apparently, other than his archbishop robes, he claimed to only own one cassock, which he wore summer or winter, whatever the weather. So um, he was uh, you know, obviously a very holy man in the, in the right way, by leading by example. And he was a leading reformer of what they call the, the Counter-Reformation. Once he became archbishop, he did find a lot of corruption and lethargy and... Uh, Debauchery, I think it's described as uh, amongst the priesthood in the Church of Milan. I think he described priests as being um, here lazy, ignorant, and debauched. <laughs> so his opinion of his own priests quite similar to the ones that William expresses about the priesthood as well. <laughs> so um, even amongst his own priests, he wasn't very impressed, and he made a, a lot of reforms to counter what he'd seen as this decline. And I think this may be one of the reasons they often say, you know, saints have to have achieved some kind of miraculous thing or instance that happened in their life that then makes them into a saint. And I suspect this may be one of the other reasons why he was canonised, because he'd made enemies in the local Milan priesthood and church by his reforms and everything. A lot of them weren't happy. And actually someone was sent to try and kill him. And this priest, who was called Jerome Donati Farina, Apparently in 1569, so uh, yeah, he was, sorry, just to get back to uh, Carlo Borromeo or Charles Borromeo, he was born in 1538. Anyway, in 1569, this priest was sent to kill him and shot at him with what they call as a, an aquabus, which is basically a, a musket. It's just quite a long musket. And um, apparently, despite only being about three or four metres away, he shot at him while he was at prayer at the altar. The bullet hit him in the back and miraculously didn't go through these um, clothes, his bishop attire that he was wearing, just sort of fell to the floor, and there was only a small bruise could be seen where the bullet had hit. And some accounts say that actually a bit of the shot went flying off and hit a wall and actually smashed a hole in the wall. So what happened, miraculously, he wasn't killed by this bullet. I have to say, when you see these really big heavy vestments that the bishop's wearing with these big thick clothes and coats, you kind of think, well, maybe if there wasn't enough gunpowder put in the musket, maybe it just wasn't going fast enough to actually go through it. It was the uh, 1500s um, version of a, a bulletproof religious vest, if you like. <laughs> anyway, but still pretty amazing, particularly if this other bit did go off and make a hole in the wall. So anyway, he survived this assassination attempt. William also makes reference to this time during the plague in Milan. 
you know, it was another example of his sainthood. Many of the priests and nobility and that left Milan at the time of this plague. He stayed in Milan and it's said that he used his own money, went into great debt to actually feed 60,000 people a day in uh, Milan during the time of the plague. So um, obviously he was, you know, happy to use his own money and um, help people. So again, another example of his uh, goodly works and goodly life. To use a William word, goodly. <laughs> so that's why he's revered so much as a saint. And it sounds like he was a proper saint, you know. He did live his life in a saintly way and perhaps deserved to be canonised. Now, I just also wanted to get onto this thing about this rock crystal sarcophagus because... If you go there now, it's still there. It's amazing to look at it because you think these bits, it does look like cut glass, but it's crystal. And he's placed in it. And um, it's very interesting because in my research, I found that actually Mark Twain writes about this. This is probably about 30 years later. And his impression of it is actually quite similar to Williams 30 years before about this whole thing of having relics and people's bodies and it's a bit like we referenced before about the um the mummies that you see at the uh british museum and various other places you know they can be quite gruesome and as william says you know is it really an appropriate way of paying reverence and homage to people <laughs> if you can see their remains and this is the interesting bit about this bit which i've mentioned before mark twain did his tour which he wrote about in The Innocents Abroad, grand tour about 30 years later. And this is one of the occasions where he's gone to the same place as William visited. And he is also very struck by this rock crystal sarcophagus in which Carlo Borromeo, the remains of St. Carlo Borromeo, are placed. Now, this is the interesting thing, because it is a kind of grotesque-looking thing. Incidentally, Mark Twain is absolutely amazed by Milan Cathedral. He loves it and thinks it's the great architectural accomplishment. But others, not so. Apparently Oscar Wilde didn't like Milan Cathedral. I think it does look a bit over the top. It's a little bit like a, a big birthday cake with a lot of candles on it to me, it looks like. But um, anyway, Mark Twain was very impressed with it architecturally. But he was also, like William, fascinated by this tomb and sarcophagus to Carlo Borromeo but his words are and I think this is something William's similarly expressing about how a better and in William's case William says a better and more fitting thing to remember him by is the cross which he carried with him in various situations but this is what Mark Twain says about the visage of poor St Charles in this tomb so he says looking at St. Charles's head. He says, St. Charles's head was black with decaying age. The dry skin was drawn tight to the bones. The eyes were gone. There was a hole in the temple and another in the cheek, and the skinny lips were parted in a ghastly smile. So that's the visage that Mark Twain is looking at, and no wonder William looks at it as well and thinks, oh, yeah, it's not, not a great way, is it, to remember these people. As I say, they often refer to as the remains, but it's you know you're talking about the skeleton, bones, and body of real people. So it's you know it's a corpse sitting there decaying. Remnants is another word that's often used. Anyway, the interesting thing now is that if you go to that rock crystal sarcophagus, not that long ago, another pope. I'll have to just make a note of who it was. Pope Paul the Sixth paid to have a silver death mask made for the corpse of Charles Borromeo. So now when you go there, you actually see his vestments, his clothes on display and over his face. So it's not quite so gruesome is this rather smart looking silver mask of his appearance. So obviously someone thought somewhere along the line, it's about time actually we did something for the poor chap. So it wasn't quite such a gruesome sight. In fact, I have actually seen an etching that is dated about 1646 or something along those lines where you can see the image of St. Carlo without the mask and uh, this very skull-like looking picture. So what he was looking like by the time William gets there in 1840 and then even later, Mark Twain in the 1870s, as they say, God only knows. Um, 
because uh, this one that was commissioned by Pope Pius the Sixth was probably put in about well, he his time as Pope was from 1965 to 78, so um, it's as as recent as that that they decided to uh, cover the visage with something that would uh, make it look a little less gruesome, I suppose. The nice thing here to see this corresponding opinion expressed by William and Mark Twain about something actually in a place that is in the same location in their travels. So if you go there today, you won't be confronted by such a a gruesome sight as both William and Mark Twain encountered when they saw the uh, poor body lying there of the revered, rightly revered, I should say, St. Carlo Borromeo. Amongst the various objects that attracted my attention and considerably puzzled me as to what their use might be were a great number of wooden boxes bearing a great resemblance to a watch box. We would say a sentry box, really, rather than a watch box now, I think. So, you know, soldier on guard. And as there were no doors to them, I could see they had comfortable seats with arms and apparently a very soft cushion. But in a few days afterwards, I was let into the whole secret. I may as well mention it here. These were the places of confession, and on walking up to the church on that occasion, I found every seat occupied by a jolly and well-fed priest. For I am perfectly satisfied in my own mind that of whatever religion or country they may be, all parsons are particularly fond of the good things of this world. Well, on each side of those boxes knelt a female, and a great many more were waiting for their turns, for as it was the week before Easter, it was considered their bounden duty to get a clear conscience so that they could receive the sacrament. After which they got a small printed certificate from the priest of having conformed to the rules of the church. On each side where the penitents kneel is a small grating and a shutter inside, so that the person within, by drawing the slide and leaning his head in that direction, can hear every whisper, though he cannot see the person without. I loitered about for some hours, and it was the same here as in France. Not one male did I see amongst the varied groups that knelt round the places of confession. This cathedral at Milan was commenced in 1402, but it progressed very slowly, and was far from being finished when Napoleon took possession of the city. He, however, after some years of labour, had the satisfaction of seeing it completed. Since I wrote the foregoing part... I have seen a statement, very recently published, in which are some particulars that I had not the opportunity of procuring during my residence there. Its nave and double aisles are supported by 52 clustered columns and 50 half-columns, and on the exterior its roof is encircled by a triple row of pinnacles and spires, each about 60 feet high, of the lightest and most elegant form, and crowned by statues as large as life. Its walls, buttresses and spires are crusted with a profusion of tracery and statues, of which the latter number is 3,400, and these being elegantly disposed do not encumber the building but give it an effect of the most florid and beautiful. The pinnacles are 120 in number, and with the exception of two were placed on the building by Napoleon. April 15th. This and several following days were devoted to a general view of the city and passing round the walls or ramparts, and in viewing the different entrances. The city of Milan is of nearly circular form, and consists of two distinct parts, viz. the inner or old town, and the outer or new town, and there are also two large suburbs without walls. The town is nearly surrounded by a navigable canal, which is crossed by a great number of bridges, and several of the gates, as well as portions of the old walls that are still standing. The old town is about seven miles in circumference. The streets are in general narrow, though very great improvements have taken place in them both during the empire and since under the Austrian government. This part of the city is very thickly inhabited, and the houses are lofty, generally of seven and eight storeys. The new or outer part contains many palazzos, excellent houses and beautiful gardens, stretching to the ramparts, and in about fourteen miles in circumference. The ramparts are not less than 200 feet wide at the top, with a roadway finely gravelled, sufficient for half a dozen carriages abreast, and on the city side are spacious footpaths, seats also being placed at intervals. 
The hall is elevated about 20 feet above the level of the ground and planted with four rows of chestnut trees, which are regularly trimmed to preserve their uniformity of appearance. The outside walls are nearly perpendicular and of great strength and thickness, and at the foot is a wide and deep moat of water. The inside is a grass slope, and at its foot is another moat or canal that answers as a fence to the gardens, thus leaving the view free from any obstructions. From both sides, the views are very fine towards the city. Houses, palaces, church towers, and the sublime cathedral, rearing its airy pinnacles in the midst. On the side next to the country, vineyards, cornfields, little villages and churches, and the Alps and the Apennines in the distance. In the evening, the part from the Porta Orientale to the Porte Nuova is crowded with carriages and handsomely dressed pedestrians, all the beauty and fashion in the city crowding to this spot. I only know of one other place that can at all compare with it, and that is Hyde Park, either in the number and splendour of the equipages or the beauty and fashion of the females. Truly, the Corso of Milan is a thing once seen not to be forgotten. Right, just going to butt in here again to discuss this bit of the journal, probably the last bit for this episode. Will goes on about discovering what the boxes were and that they were actually the confession boxes or stalls. Slightly contradictory bit, really, because he says, oh, I didn't realise what they were. Then at the end of that kind of thing, he talks about how it's only the women who seem to be doing the ones doing the confessing. He then refers to having seen it in France as well, so... <laughs> I would have thought it was fairly obvious that these were the confessional boxes, but perhaps um, they looked much more different to the ones that he'd seen in France. I don't know. It's quite nice, I suppose, that Will observes that going on in the cathedral. The next bit, he goes on to describe the sights of Milan. Now, this is quite difficult to convey now what he's seeing and what exists there today, because Milan has changed massively since William's time. Obviously, these days, it's a very modern, dynamic city, also a big centre of trade and business as well. So it's uh, transformed hugely since uh, the time that William was there. But I think just to give you an idea of the layout of Milan during his time and sort of how it is now, there are what are known as the Walls of Milan. And these were based on three periods of history. So the way the streets of central Milan are now mapped out, basically follow these walls that were one time in place. And these date back to the Roman times, so there were the Roman walls that were sort of circular in the city, and there were two stages of those. They were then expanded again in medieval times, and then there was a period around about the 1600s, I think, and these are referred to as the Spanish walls, so they're all ramparts and defensive walls that were built as Milan gradually expanded more and more. And in fact, William makes a reference to that. I think he says the ramparts and then saying there are two suburbs beyond the ramparts. So, you know, it was you can see the beginnings of Milan expanding beyond the walls in William's time. But I think the main thing to say here is that he talks of this promenade that is really on the top of one of the walls that people used to walk around. I'm not sure if it went entirely around the whole length of the circular walls of... These would have been, I think, the Spanish walls. But uh, there's this big promenade which he describes. Then you can see the Alps from one side and the Apennines, and you can see the Milan Cathedral you know, in the centre from the other. So it gives you a very good view of the city during his time and he describes it rather being like Hyde Park in its busyness. But unfortunately, that whole thing doesn't exist anymore. That was all in the latter half of the 19th century demolished. And now, these days, they are routes, if you like, of roadways, ring roads that run round the city of Milan. Now, there were moats next to these ramparts or walls, and where these moats were, these have been turned into canals, so there are canals that follow this route around the centre of Milan as well, but the actual ramparts that he's describing here and the people strolling around in the evening with their equipages, their carriages, that's all gone, and they are now just major ring roads around that part of the city. So it's in a way, it sounds a bit of a shame because it sounds like a very attractive way of being able to stroll and see the city at that time. There are some reference to how it looked then, there's a writer called, a French writer called 
Stendhal, that was his pen name. His actual name was Marie-Henri Bell. He was a 19th century French writer, and he does describe in his book, Rome, Naples, et France, he says, at the time, a passer-by would be able to see the Duomo, so that's the cathedral, from anywhere on the walls. From the northern part of the walls, one would be able to see both the Duomo, if looking south, and the Alps, if looking north. So that is a similar description that... Uh, this uh, Marie-Henri Bell or Stendhal is referring to there. Just looking at his dates of birth, he died actually in 1842. So he must have made his uh, his time in Milan a little bit before William's time. But um, it gives you an idea that there was this promenade, as William describes, I think he says it's about 25 feet above the rest of the thing, promenade that went around this circular wall of Milan on the Spanish walls. And um, obviously it gave you a great view of the city and was an attractive place for people to sort of spend their time in the evening, I suppose, seeing and being seen. Just to say later on, when we get on to the next bit of William's description of the layout of Milan, also around the Spanish walls and some of the medieval ones and Roman ones, there are various gates that were placed that were entrance into the city through the walls, but a lot of them were replaced by much grander gates, neoclassical gates, and uh, William will refer to a lot of these. So a lot of those still exist. Not all of them, but some of those still exist, and we'll see him describing some of those in the next bit. And, in fact, there's a, there is one that's an actual Roman one that still exists, actually. But sometimes these areas as well are also... It's not just the gate itself that's referred to. They're also referred to as an area of Milan as well. So sometimes the two names of the gates, the actual gateway, I would describe it as a portico entrance. That's also used as the name for that area of Milan as well in modern times. So I just thought I'd say that really, just to get you an idea, because Milan, compared to, say, Paris, from the time William's describing Paris and how it is now, a lot of what he's seeing was put in place in Paris and still exists today. It seems to me that in Milan there's quite a bit of it that um, really just isn't there anymore. It's been transformed so much. So it does make it a little bit harder to get an idea of the geography and the architecture of 1840s Milan compared to 21st century Milan. But in the next episode we'll try and talk you through that I think the thing to say at this point is that William's got these three weeks before he starts working on the railway in Milan. So he's got plenty of time to explore it and see the sights and sounds of it. So these next episodes, a bit like when we were in Paris, are probably going to be dominated a little bit by his uh, time seeing the sights and sounds of Milan. So I imagine that'll be how it pans out in the next, certainly in the next episode and possibly the episode after that. And then we might actually get to him being on the railway as well. I should say his time on the railway, he also, during that time, spends a lot of his sightseeing as well. So his time on the railway is intertwined with a lot of sightseeing and a visiting of the sights and sounds of nearby cities and towns, and also a bit more of the ways of Italian culture or Piedmontese culture more accurately that he's observing at the time. So that's about it for this episode. It was a bit hard to judge when to start and when to stop this time, but I thought if I embark on the next bit now it would get too lengthy, so I thought it's better to stop here and then begin again when we follow him uh, spending these three weeks looking at the sights and sounds, as he says. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Perhaps you could say, oh, not that much happened. I mean, I haven't even touched the surface with what we could say about Milan Cathedral, to be honest. I mean, it's a very, very impressive building. Mark Twain absolutely loved it. I think he says oh, it's said to be only second to St. Peter's in Rome and made by human hands. But he says something like, how could human hands make anything better? I think the thing about Milan Cathedral is because it's made of this marble, that for a start immediately kind of gives it a look and appearance that's certainly very different from the cathedrals in the UK. Our cathedrals are all made out of sandstone, so they don't glimmer and shine, whereas I suppose Milan Cathedral is almost 
perhaps a bit more like the Taj Mahal in the way that the exterior and the glittering light of the marble that's been used on it. I shall have to go there. It's slightly frustrating with my work. Occasionally there's a massive machine... Boy, you senseless now. I have a massive machine tool show every other year. It's called Emo, and it's a massive one. And they hold two of the shows in Germany, and they hold one in Italy. And all the times I've had to go to these huge machine tool shows, I've always gone to the ones in Hanover, <laughs> not the ones in Milan. <laughs> and the last one was held in Milan, and I missed that one, partly because of COVID and all those sort of problems. You know, it would have been really good. I could have maybe taken a couple of days off work and uh, done a bit of sightseeing. I'll have to arrange an, a, a separate trip, I suppose, at some point out there. I do know, for example, there is a building that was originally built for, I think they described it the Milan-Monza bit, because the bit that Williams is in is actually Milan to Monza. That railway station, although it's not a railway station anymore, the building is still there. So it would be great to um, investigate that a bit more and uh, maybe as well pick the bones of an Italian railway historian just to talk about it more and maybe who knows they may have some records of William's time there It'd be great to go out there and uh, maybe see if they can shed any more light on the early history of the railway I'm hoping to actually have a future episode talking to a British railway historian who knows an awful lot about this period this very early period Hopefully we're going to do an interview with him to discuss this whole thing. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast. Please do tell your friends. I see my numbers steadily increasing in terms of listenership, and I know that you are dotted around the world, so it's very nice that you are listening, and uh, it's very much appreciated. But it would be great to get a few more people listening, so... As I said before, do tell anyone who you think might be interested in uh, this particular era of history and uh, William's journey and account. You know, it is a unique thing in a way because it's someone's account who was around at the time. Bye for now. (laughs) 